You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, Andrew and I are joined from Addis Ababa by Dr. John Nkengazong, Director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Ambassador Jesse LaPen, Ambassador to the African Union and Permanent Representative to the UN Economic Commission for Africa. Thank you, John and Jesse, for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to join you. Thanks so much. John, if you could begin by just giving us a quick update on COVID-19 in Africa in terms of case counts and fatalities, levels of testing, access to some critical items like PPE and test kits and oxygen. Give us a quick overview, if you would, just as a baseline for this conversation. No, thank you. As of today, May 11, the continent has reported 63,000 cases of COVID from 53 countries. And it's resulted to about 2,290, close to 2,300 cases. So if you compare this number, that is the number of 63,325 compared to last week, it represents an increase of almost uh, 39% of where we were last week. So I think we continue to see an upward trend across the, the continent. And if you look at the continent by region, the five regions, there, the northern part of the continent has more cases there, followed by the western part of the continent, that is West Africa as a whole. So I think that is where you begin to see a lot of them. And there are five countries that are counting for more than 55% of the cases. That is Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, South Africa, and now Nigeria all account for over 55% of, of the cases. So I think we continue to see a rise in number of cases regardless of the regions. And uh, overall, uh, the rates are increasingly worrying because we don't see many countries flattening yet. However, there are some bright spots there like Namibia, where we see they have few cases and over the last couple of weeks, they have not reported a new case. So in terms of access to diagnostics, we now know that uh, we have, our testing rates continue to be low. We have tested as a continent less than 900,000 tests conducted or individuals tested. I'd like to make a difference between number of tests conducted and number of individuals tested. So the less than 900,000 tests represent the number of tests that has been done across the entire continent of 1.3 billion people. So uh, one of the greatest challenge continues to be our ability to scale up testing uh, so that we stay ahead of, of the pandemic. NASA keeps reminding the continent, if you don't test, you don't find. And if you test, you'll find, and as we are seeing it across the continent. So with respect to access to personal protective equipment, we uh, know that there is a, there's a serious shortage of that, I mean, across the board, including masks including gloves, including personal uh, protective medical equipment. The continent is working hard in a very, very coordinated way at three levels. One is at the level of head of states, the Bureau of Head of States, that they meet every two weeks to uh, get an update and provide direction on where, as a continent, we should be heading. Then that is supported by three coordinating committees. One committee by the ministers of health that they meet every week. Second committee is ministers of finance. They also meet very regularly and ministers of transport. 
Then that is all backed up by the African Task Force for Coronavirus Preparedness and Response, which uh, they do meet every week. And this brings the best minds on the continent together. So that is where we are. With respect to what I call respiratory support equipment, we still know that we are in dire need of respirators, ventilators, just across the board. I think we are making a lot of efforts as a continent, but it's still very limited. Thank you, John. Um, you're the founding director of Africa CDC. You started in January of 17, so you've been at it now for over three years, building up this institution, which has become super active in this period. Just tell us a bit about the special contributions that Africa CDC makes in this particular crisis. I know you're doing many, many things, but give us a quick sense of the most important things that you're up to. Absolutely. I think there are two levels of what I call significant contributions that the Africa CDC has brought to the table to fight this pandemic. One is the overall coordination and bringing in the political leverage of the African Union. The Africa CDC was the first to convene I work with the, uh, the chairperson of the African Union to convene an emergency meeting of ministers of health on February 22nd. That brought all ministers from the 55 member states to elaborate and agree on the need to have a joint coordinated continental strategy. That was the first of its kind for uh, the continent of Africa to come together and elaborate that. That also led to the establishment of a, a task force, which is still operating today under the coordination of Africa citizens. So at least at that policy level and coordinating level, Africa CDC has played a very significant role. Now, at the level of the technical level, I think Africa CDC has contributed in at least four significant ways. One is that before the continent was hit, uh, we were upfront in providing training to many countries in the areas of enhanced surveillance. We were upfront in training many countries in the areas of scaling up of laboratories. Actually, if this pandemic had hit the continent in January, there was absolutely no laboratory that was able to test it because there was lack of diagnostics. So we were able to roll that up within three weeks and brought for the three countries uh, and equip them with the ability to test for the virus in a competent-based manner. And that is very significant. And then the risk communication piece as well. And lastly, in the area of clinical management of cases, that way we've trained over 4,000 Africans across the board on case management of COVID. Let me just go back to the, the laboratory part again and say that besides the training, we've rolled out more than uh, 1.5 million tests across the continent. That includes helping to distribute large amount of tests that was donated by the Jackman Foundation and also buying ourselves and distributing. So I think those are some of the areas that the Africa CDC has made, uh, in my view, a very significant contribution. Thank you. We're going to roll back to many of these areas that you mentioned in just a moment. I want to ask Ambassador Le Pen, the U.S. government's been a close ally and partner with Africa CDC from the very beginning, from its genesis, really. Of course, Dr. Nkengazong was for many years working as part of CDC in, in Atlanta. Tell us, what's the U.S. government doing to partner today with Africa CDC? And where does uh, Africa CDC sit in our strategy for combating COVID-19 in Africa? Thanks. So as you say, it's a, a longstanding relationship really from the beginning in 2017. And in many ways, Africa CDC is modeled on our, our own approach. So over the past three years, the focus has been and continues to be on technical assistance. So it's surveillance, it's labs, it's epidemiology. We've also provided human resource support 
in cases when a surge is needed, like in the case of Ebola. And we're, we're looking at doing that now for COVID. In terms of the broad strategy, so I'd say two things. One, we have so far committed $247 million for COVID response across the continent. That's out of a global total of $900 million. And what I think is important, where I pick up from what Dr. John was saying about testing, is he described the limited number of tests. And I think that his intention is to increase testing, to roll out a significant increase in testing. And I think what's going to happen there is a really important connectivity between Africa CDC's testing efforts and all of the platforms that have been built by U.S. government. Over the past, I mean, you know the numbers, over the past two decades, it's been about $60 billion in health, much of it PEPFAR, but also the Global Health Security Agenda and President's Malaria Initiative. And the result of those efforts is huge lab capacity and also training of healthcare workers. And so those are going to be enormously important as Africa CDC and the continent scale up testing. Thank you. I'm going to ask my co-host and partner in this, uh, Andrew Schwartz, to jump in. Thank you, Steve. And Ambassador LePen, thank you so much for your years of service to the United States. I wanted to ask you along the lines of what you were just talking about. We've made a tremendous investment in Africa, as you just described. How well positioned are we to stop what seems to be, you know, just a a catastrophe waiting to happen in Africa with COVID-19? I think, I mean, I wouldn't want to be overly rosy or sunny in the current context, but I think we are well positioned because one thing from my own perspective of of jobs I've had across the continent is that um, a feature that's not really captured in the $60 billion is the relationships we've built with health departments, health systems, health ministries across the continent. And those relationships and the trust that's come out of them, I think will be enormously important. And also our our own skills and talents. So although many colleagues have, have gone back to the States for their own health concerns, they're working from there or they're still on the continent working hard. And that's particularly true of USAID and of CDC as well as State Department. What capacity are we at right now across the continent in terms of embassy strength and USAID presence? I know a lot. We've 50,000 folks have been brought home in the last several months from posts around the world. Honestly, I don't know. I think it varies according to health systems, you know, health infrastructure available. And then in the end, you know, personal choice. But the department is trying to make sure people can work remotely, but also, you know, that we're taking care of our people. Dr. Inkazong, can we come back to this whole question around access to key commodities and whether we're entering a crisis here? There's a real fear that this virus could get out of control and that testing, as you pointed out, testing remains woeful and along with poor access to protective gear, test kits and reagents and oxygen. And the markets themselves have been very constrictive, chaotic, difficult to access at affordable levels. Do you agree? And is that changing? How do you cope with this threat of being of Africa finding itself at the back of the line and disadvantaged in terms of access to these key items? I agree fully. We are in a global crisis and I can understand people's behavior that in times of crisis, people panic, countries and the global community panics and then looks inward. And I think it's absolutely 
the responsibility of every nation to protect its, its citizens. I can understand that. But the point I've always made for the world is that we live in a global village and COVID-19 will not be eliminated anywhere in the world if it takes hold in Africa, a continent of 1.3 billion. The threat will continue to be serious across the world if we in Africa and collectively do not get COVID under control. This is not a malaria program or an Ebola pro a program that is localized there. It's, uh, I mean, so in other words, uh, the, the battles will be fought locally, globally at the national level, but the victory has to be global. So from that perspective, I think I fully understand that the reaction has been that of looking inward and trying to meet the domestic needs. But this is time to, for all of us to, to look past our nations and say, how do we have a global strategy? That means begin to look at diagnostics and say, well, we need to allocate a quarter of these diagnostics for Africa so that they can fight properly. I mean, without that, I mean, and Ambassador Le Pen mentioned something that I really want to come back to. The true test of the long-term investment or the return on investment on what PEPFAR and the global health security agenda that the U.S. massively supported, the test of that time is now to show how that those investments were not just poured in vertically, but that it had the ability to leverage and allow Africa as a nation to fight these uh, diseases. When I was at PEPFAR and the CDC, Ambassador Burks and myself really preached the whole concept of integrated lab systems, which means you have platforms that you can use to fight TB, malaria, HIV, and the unknown. And here we are with the unknowns, and this is the time for that concept to be demonstrated. Otherwise, uh, I mean, it will be very, very challenging to scale up diagnostics if we did not build onto those PEPFAR platforms and investments that were on the continent. So we have made a very great effort and great strives to put diagnostics, but they are still limited to the central level. I mean, we need to now build partnerships that will expand this to the, the, the more decentralized level and enable that you can actually test and quickly bring back the results and then activate your contact tracing there. Again, this is not uh, an HIV test where you can test people, give them the results at pace. You have to be able to, the test is only valid if you can do that almost immediately and act on the results. I think that is where we begin to get our hands around the fight against COVID on the continent. So access to testing has to be a partnership. That is why we built and launched a partnership called PAC, which is Partnership to Accelerate COVID Testing in Africa, which is underpinned by tracking, testing, tracing, and treating. So those are the four cornerstones of the new initiative that we launched about two weeks ago to have to unlock this issue of access to, uh, to testing. Can you say a little bit about the Chinese billionaire Jack Ma and the Alibaba Foundation, as well as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? I mean, Jack Ma brought in a million test kits and six, six million masks and thousands of protective suits. It was a fairly dramatic gesture. The Gates Foundation has been very fast off the mark early on in a couple of different ways to support the Africa CDC. Can you say a bit about the importance of those initiatives? Absolutely. I think that the success of Africa CDC has been at several levels. One is at a technical level. I mean, as we all know on this panel that a good public health is the, the concepts, applying those concepts and the technical support. So from that perspective, the U.S. CDC and the U.S. government's support has been significant in providing technical assistance to, to making sure that uh, the response is well uh, grounded. Then at the second level is the material support, which we've really received 
some support from the Jack Ma Foundation, the one million test kits that you mentioned came in in a very timely fashion. At a point where countries were struggling a lot, so each country was able to receive 20,000 tests. That really gave all of us relief. The third level of support is really the donation. I think a lot our very early support came from the, the donations from the Gates Foundation that enabled us to put in the diagnostic capacity into the 43 countries very quickly. And since then, the Score Foundation and the Welcome Trust Foundation have also uh, chipped in to support in a, very generously. So I think the combination of uh, support from the Gates, from the Score Foundation, from the Welcome Trust has really put us in a poor position to continue to add value to the response on the, on the continent. So those are three different le- levels of support that, I mean, we uh, need to take into account as we evaluate where we are in this response. Thank you. Thank you so much. Andrew. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Dr. John and Ambassador Le Pen, so this is to both of you. As Africa looks inward, we have to obviously keep in mind that Africa, just like the United States, the United States is made up of 50 states. Africa is made up of many countries. And many countries in Africa, of course, are densely populated. How difficult does it make it in these countries to social distance to contact trace, to to test, to do all the things that you've both been talking about. And what's a smart strategy? How do you knit together a strategy across the continent when you have such diverse countries, you know, from Morocco all the way down to South Africa? I think that that's a very valid question and concern that we have all been grappling with to understand that. And one thing that we noticed early on is that countries in Africa were very quick at uh, reacting and showing a high level political leadership by locking down the system and putting in strong uh, public health measures. But clearly, as we stated, there are two factors that makes it difficult to maintain a lockdown for, for long and fully implement the public health measures. One is that majority of our people under $2 a, a day and they have to, to hustle. They have to go out and, and look for a source of living. So we have to balance between the livelihood and saving livelihoods and saving lives. I think that is the balance that we're struggling with. If I look at the, the ability to implement social distances, we have to put that in the sociocultural context of our own uh, living, which is we're dealing with situations where we live in large families. People uh, live in, in large communities. It's outdoor. When I drive to and from work in, in Addis Ababa, I still see people cluster in small cafes and uh, traditionally see, enjoying a coffee and chatting and so on. So it's very difficult to, to maintain and sustain social distancing there. Now, we have to do something with that, which means that for this to be successful, we have to really intensify our community response and make sure that uh, the response is, is led and owned by the community by building champions, maintaining appropriate language that will be understood at the community level and, and lead that, that message is led at the community level. With short of that, I think it will be very, very difficult to just proclaim that there should be social distancing and it happens there. I think we are already seeing that many uh, uh, countries with riotings are beginning to erupt in many countries because of, of the, the, the tension between uh, saving lives and saving livelihoods. Ambassador Le Pen? 
What I would add in terms of John's comments on the debate is that the economic impacts are are massive, right? And they're alongside with, but not disconnected from the public health aspects. And so we're also really trying to think, how do we reorient all of our assistance programs on the one hand, particularly for food security and for small and medium-sized enterprises, and then also obviously participating fully in conversations about debts and how do we suspend or hold on payments for that in the meanwhile. But I think I would pick up also on John's point, which is about the fact that leadership has really come together. And the process that he described at the head of state level, at the ministerial, at the technical level, when he describes it, it sounds so uh, sort of obvious, like, of course, that's a good way to respond. But I, it strikes me that it's actually pretty amazing in the context of COVID where the instinct is actually to close borders and to close airports, the ability of many leaders on the continent to rise above that and take a truly integrated continental approach is significant. And the fact that they're doing it with Africa CDC functioning as a secretariat is important that as they gather and as they wrestle with the hard policy issues that John described, they're doing it based on his information, his data. And I think that's challenging because as we know, we're still learning about the virus. And so the, the data is constantly changing, um, which makes the, the fact that this is how it's being handled particularly impressive, I think. What keeps you up at night, Ambassador LePen? What's What's your biggest fear right now? I mean, you know, right, like everyone, you you quickly go to a personal place and you worry about your own family. But beyond that, that this gets out of control and that governments are unable to handle it and that we um, are unable to mobilize quickly. So I, I, I worry about the same things in that respect as everyone, but feel like we've got, on the one hand, really smart, strong people at Africa CDC led by John and a nesting of their work in a political consensus and a very strong effort from us as USG to, to supporting those efforts, both bilaterally and then multilaterally. Can I come back, John, to this leadership issue? It does seem to me that we are seeing some very strong leadership emerging. Uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, president of South Africa and in 2020 chair of the Africa Union, has been extremely active and vocal. Dr. Tedros, head of the World Health Organization, has engaged repeatedly with African heads of state as well as ministers to appeal to them to take this very seriously. Dr. Moeti, head of the Africa regional body, Afro of WHO. And then you have the heads of state of Rwanda, Ethiopia, Ghana also being quite active. That doesn't mean you don't have still a deficit of leadership in many places. You've talked about how it's concentrated in North Africa where the testing may be more advanced. But tell us a bit about, I mean, your your ability to be effective hinges on your ability to have strong leadership at the heads of state level to pull forward with the kind of vision that you're putting forward. Just say a bit about this period and what you've seen in leadership in the continent. Let me hinge my comments to what Ambassador Penn mentioned, which is a, a great remark that on, on, on the surface, it looks like putting these things into three pockets, like the head of state coordination level, the ministers, and the, the, the technical level, and whatever. That, that is all the work of Africa CDC, trying to bring these connectivities together and proposing them, and coordinating and making sure that they function. Like at the ministerial level, 
uh, we, we they, they try to define the agenda. When the 10 ministers come together with, with the leadership of the RECs, it's usually a meeting of about 20 uh, leaders that they meet every minute. Then we have to bring, make sure that we feed them with an agenda that they will see value in it and they will see quality in it. That is what is sustained and it's all uh, originating from Africa CDC. At the head of state level, the reason that uh, President Ramaphosa will specifically ask Africa CDC to be the provider of information to at least 10 head of states when they meet every two weeks is that they've seen value in their own organization. The Africa CDC is the wisdom and the vision and the creation of the head of states. So I'm really pleased that they've really recognized that and they've not politicized it at all. They give you the latitude to tell them the way it is and uh, without sugarcoating it. And then the proposal that I've had the chance of briefing them four times, all four times they've met, and all proposals you've put on the table, they've endorsed it and, and supported it. They've actually been very, very active in contributing, pledging additional funding to support Africa CDC. As you recall, President Amaphosa set out the African Union COVID response fund and mobilized the private sector just two weeks ago, and they were almost 27 top business leaders across the continent, including the, the head of the uh, African Development Bank. Very significant pledges were made. The African Development Bank pledged about $26 million uh, on the spot, and we are working actively with them to, for Africa CDC to have, to have that and a series of others. I mean, many countries have since pledged, uh, including Kenya, Egypt, South Africa. The point I'm making is if they didn't see value, in Africa CDC, and especially playing a central role in this, they will not be committing the, that amount of resources and the support, the strong moral support, tweeting about Africa CDC and recognizing that very publicly there. So I think it's a new, a new day for the, the, the continent as we respond to this outbreak, uh, which is very different from when we were responding uh, to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and even DRC, uh, that they didn't have their own public health agency. Dr. Tedros and I have had the chance to brief them uh, jointly, which is unprecedented for Africa to first say, okay, we want to hear from our own, and then we hear from Dr. Tedros, not as an African, but as uh, the world, uh, the leader of the World Health Organization. I think that distinction is very, very important. And very important decisions have been made. For example, they are saying, look, Africa CDC, you have to establish a platform that you, you coordinate pooling procurement of commodities. Uh, to support this, and we are working actively. Then they immediately ask the private um, sector person to help us, Africa CDC, to establish that, and we are working actively to putting that together. Just imagine if we pull that together and you have a platform where you can coordinate procurement of diagnostics and commodities on the continent through Africa CDC, that becomes a game changer. That will complement the efforts that are going on in Geneva. So it's extremely challenging, as you can imagine, but it's really, uh, it has the potential to be a game changer that uh, Africa CDC working alongside WHO and other partners begin to have a platform that you can actually inform the head of states and, and guide their decision and public health on the continent. John, the WHO and the Chinese and the U.S. government have been core partners with the Africa CDC since it was formed. And yet we're, today we're in a situation where there's a, a swiftly escalating confrontation between the United States and China that's become sort of a central, highly toxic reality uh, that hangs over the global response to COVID-19. And the Trump administration suspended support to WHO and is refusing to participate in things that WHO organizes. 
you're partners with all three of these entities, the U.S. government, China and WHO. How do you navigate these realities? Maybe, maybe I should let Ambassador Le Pen go first and address that. That's a tough one. As a diplomat, and then <laughs> I'll, I'll find a way to, I mean, but seriously, I think that, I mean, clearly the continent as a whole is, we all know what Africa faces, despite its great aspirations uh, to implement the Agenda 2063 and uh, to develop the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is all, it's economic, but it's going to have huge implications on, on the health side if, that continental free trade agreement is implemented well. Uh, we know that, uh, yes, we've been talking about COVID for the last uh, four months now, or five months, uh, but we still are challenged with serious uh, endemic diseases like the HIV that the US uh, government has been instrumental in saving the continent, in bailing the continent out of a disaster. By the time Pepper came in, vividly uh, was part of the group, uh, that uh, was very early on uh, absorbed into PEPFAR. And the game changer, the historic game-changing effect of PEPFAR on the lives of Africans, and the TB programs, the malaria and the, the, the polio. So the point I'm making is that Africa is struggling and we need all the partnerships and support that uh, is out there to be with WHO, with the European Union, the, the Chinese, the, the Americans, to solve this very uh, serious uh, health crisis there. So I think... The world has always been in a better place when the United States has exercised uh, leadership in uh, like what I just described in HIV, uh, malaria, and TB programs. And Africa really hopes that they will continue to get benefit from good partnerships from, from any partner, not just the Chinese, not just the Americans, but the Europeans, the Japanese, as well as uh, the WHO. So I think that is uh, a stand. I mean, in, in brief, we are challenged with, in an unprecedented manner. And uh, the antimicrobial re resistance is increasing. Non-communicable diseases are increasing. So just uh, we can only think of uh, effective partnerships across the board that will help Africa emerge from this um, situation. Does WHO remain a vital partner in Africa? That's what we're hearing, that WHO is its strongest constituency are low-income countries predominantly in Africa in terms of both across the board on programs but also on the emergency response, working with you. Absolutely. If you look at the way the, the world is, is shaped up, I mean, you say, where, where is WHO most needed? It's perhaps, again, on the continent of Africa. In the Latin America or Southern Africa, you have uh, Southern America, you have PAHO, I mean, which uh, predates WHO. I think, uh, I don't think in Europe, then you go to Europe, you say, well, uh, uh, with WHO or not, the Europeans will take care of their own health issues. <laughs> then you go to Asia, you say, well, the Chinese are taking care of their own business as well as the Indians are taking care and Thailand. So you really realize that, I mean, Africa is still a continent that requires a strong WHO support. Now, the bet of Africa CDC doesn't negate the fact that you should have a strong WHO. I think you only make it more effective as we preach the concept of each country having its own national public health institute. Okay, similar to what the United States has for the, the CDC or the Korean CDC or uh, the, the European CDC. That's a, a concept that will help synergize the work of WHO, but it cannot replace the work of WHO on, on the continent. Ambassador Le Pen? Yeah, I mean, I think the focus for us here is very, very much what can the U.S. bring to Africa's CDC and to other continent efforts. And so for me, that's really absolutely the focus. And I was, I was reflecting on what I said previously, and I thought, 
USG took a lot of credit, which I think is very appropriate. But I also want to acknowledge um, the non-governmental U.S. contributions, which I think are so significant. Dr. John referenced the contributions already this year from Gates and Skoll, which is already, I think, $8 million. And for Gates, what to me is significant about the contribution is it was early, it was fast, and it followed on a long period of relationship building. Um, this wasn't a new relationship. This wasn't new money. And I think that in many ways characterizes U.S. contributions to public health across the continent, right? It's, it's rooted in experience. It's rooted in relationships. This is 20 years of contributions and you're seeing government, um, draw on that. You're seeing foundations. And interestingly, you're also crucially seeing U.S. private sector participate. Independent of USG, they are, are showing up. And so Dr. John and I did an event a couple of weeks ago. Over 200 U.S. businesses participated. Many have followed up afterwards to figure out how can they partner. It's a mix, right? So from pharmaceuticals to supply chain to other U.S. businesses with a long presence on the continent who say, these are our, our communities, our contexts, our, our workforce. How can we contribute? Interestingly, there was, and Dr. John can talk about it as well, but a U.S. company in California called Illumina, um, which does genome sequencing, just made a significant contribution of almost $2 million in, in equipment to Africa CDC. So for me, as I, as I think about the U.S. contribution, it's, it's really a whole of America contribution with foundations, business, and government. And it's rooted in two decades of contributing in this space. Thank you. John, we haven't talked at all about R&D, about the field trials for vaccines and therapies, and what's your role in trying to play a coordinating and facilitative role in, in that? Yeah, absolutely. As we speak, there are about 25 registered clinical trials on the continent of Africa for COVID. For vaccines? No, 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 for just drugs. There's only one trial for vaccine in uh, BCG in, in, in Egypt, and 11 of those are actually in Egypt. And the rest are spread across uh, the continent, like three cases, uh, trials across uh, multiple countries. So, I mean, the, so the continent as a whole is, is busy. But what our role, specific role, is that we have, uh, I didn't get a chance to expand past the, the steering committee there as we speak. Actually, as I'm on Discord, there's a steering committee uh, meeting of the task force going on, and there's a technical working group on science, research, and innovation that has lent its uh, ability to, to guide countries that are interested in, in doing uh, clinical trials and also being the voice of clarity when uh, there's a lot of misinformation, as you can imagine, I'm sure it's the same in the U.S. And my greatest concern and fear is that uh, some of that, that is politicized. Some of that people, at, I can't tell you how many times I've had to go to the, the commission meeting at the AU to try to be very vocal that people stop being too emotional about maybe a, a video clip that they saw on the media about a French uh, scientist saying, well, we should test this vaccine in Africa and they overreact to that. I said, look, we as Africans are very capable scientists. We've shown that uh, we can conduct vaccine trials in West Africa during the Ebola crisis. JJ Moyembe and the team have conducted very good clinical trials in, in DRC that have contributed significantly in, in controlling the, the outbreak. So Africa CDC steps in as a voice of clarity to say, hey, look, 
let's not overreact this way that vaccine trials and clinical trials is the way to go. Uh, we just have to be sure that we Africa CDC ensure that the clinical trials are conducted in the most ethical and scientific manner. I think we've been playing that role uh, significantly. We hope that as we move forward, there will be a more tendency for vaccine research and development, not just trial, to take place on, on the continent. I think that will be, when this is all said and done, I would like to see a, a little bit more of local R&D on the continent, not just for vaccine, but for drugs and as well as diagnostics. And one of the reasons we are so back uh, behind in testing is that there's absolutely no company, as we speak, on the continent of Africa that produces diagnostics. Okay, zero. So that has to stop. I mean, you cannot blame others entirely if we do not invest into that. That has to happen. Now, as we speak, there are four countries that are investing in uh, R&D for diagnostics uh, in, in Senegal, in Morocco, and uh, in Camry and South Africa. And we, Africa CDC, are facilitating those, that dialogue and providing an enabling environment. For example, we've offered that once the test is developed in Morocco, we'll be able to take it and then do an independent evaluation across the continent. And that is also true for the tests that are being developed at Camry and in, and in Senegal. So Africa CDC stands are really at the center of this. To behave like a CDC behaves, I mean, I mean I, as you said, I spent two, more than two decades at the US CDC, and I think its value comes from the R&D that it does, and then it's always at the top, at, at in, in the front, not at the back end of this uh, R&D and discoveries. Thank you. Andrew? Yeah, just a final question for both of you. How are you dealing with misinformation or disinformation regarding COVID-19? So what I would say we're seeing is that disinformation is culturally specific, right? The wrong story resonates one place, a different wrong story resonates somewhere else. So my colleagues across the continent, all of our embassies are putting our public affairs efforts to this. We, from my team at the U.S. Mission to the AU, have worked with some of the Africa CDC folks to help get the messaging across. But I mean, basically fighting bad information with good information. But it's really, really, really important because people need constructive information, whether it's about social distancing or hand washing. Even if their constraints and locales may be restricted, we've got to get good information out. Yeah, and, and just to supplement that, Ambassador Pen said, it's the continuous process. I think we know that misinformation and uh, false information is a characteristic of when we deal with uh, a new situation, a challenging disease situation that people are afraid of, people are scared, they are worried. Uh, we saw that early on in the HIV uh, AIDS. I mean, uh, there's, that leads to human rights issues and discrimination, which we are really, really as an African CDC, also very vocal that we have to win this fight by ensuring that there are human rights and no discrimination across the board. We have to learn from the past. And some of that information that once people put out uh, statements that are not true or not verified, it creates issues of uh, discrimination. It creates issue of we versus you. And that is also areas that we are fighting very, very hard. I mean, you've also heard over the media that there's uh, a product in Madagascar. Those are good examples where we are not discounting it, but we're trying to be sure that we approach it with logic and with, uh, with science, which we are saying, look, they are very capable scientists in Madagascar, extremely competent, and we're inviting you to join our ta technical task force, which the head of states have endorsed, so that you can open up the data, you show us the data, and if it's promising, we say, good. 
let's expand maybe the study to understand efficacy and safety. And everybody wins from that if, because nobody knows where the, the solution will come. But you also probably saw on the social media that it was a, a test developed in Senegal with $1 and things like that. We, I mean, they call, when you hear that, immediately comes to us. I mean, I spent like two days trying to fight that kind of information because the media is all over. They want to hear from you. I mean, so I think we, we help in correcting that and putting that in the right context, not to shame people or so, but put that in the, the most appropriate scientific context in language that the media can help with. And I must say the media has been extremely cooperative with us. Uh, we, I do meet with the media every Thursday at 11 o'clock and consistently, and they have been a very good ally in transmitting some of the information. Thanks to both of you for this expansive interview. Um, we really appreciate it. Steve? We're so impressed and, and indebted to you, John, for your leadership and what Africa CDC has been able to accomplish in a fairly short period of time. It's quite remarkable. And to put yourself at the very center of the continental response is truly important and powerful uh, reality. And Ambassador Le Pen, thank you for your leadership there in Addis at the AU and, and, and the UN Economic Commission for Africa. It's great to have you there. And thanks to both of you for taking time with us today. Thank you so much. And thank Ambassador Le Pen for being a, a trusted ally in this. And I'm only copying and paste what I learned from the U.S. CDC. So not much I do about that. <laughs> Good team. Thank you. Thank you.